0: Song of Solomon. We'll be continuing our series in the Song of Solomon today, chapter 5. The Song of Solomon presents to us the relationship that we, the church, have with Jesus Christ as our husband. He is presented as our husband and us as his bride throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Lord has an overall theme where he speaks of Israel's departing from him as adultery, as his wife leaving him to go to other gods. He chastises her, but then promises to graciously restore her to himself. The entire book of Hosea has that theme specifically, and many other passages in the prophets, like in Isaiah, where it talks about God divorcing his people and restoring them, about being a bride and one that brings forth children, all kinds of different things like that. And Ezekiel, of course, speaks very strongly in chapter 16 about the, uh, the unfaithfulness, the adultery of his people. In the New Testament, the theme continues with this husband and Christ, Christ the husband and the church being his bride, where Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11:2 that I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He was urging them to be faithful to Jesus, their betrothed husband. Now understand, of course, that in the Bible, a betrothed woman was considered in a, in a way a married woman, not fully, she had not consummated the marriage, moved in with her husband, and had actually the wedding yet, but they did have a covenant already established that was binding, and if she was to have relations with someone else, it would be adultery. So it's a it's not just a like what we think of it as engagement. It's something that is not to to be broken. The New Testament speaks of the great marriage day that will come then at the end when Christ appears and his bride is presented in her arrayed and the clothing that he has given her as a bride without spot or blemish. One uh, that is adorned by him to, to go and live in his house forever. But the Song of Solomon, this book that we've been looking at, it stands out in a special way in the canon of Scripture because of the way that it speaks of our relation to Christ in marriage. It presents the intimacy of our relationship with Him. And that's what makes some people uncomfortable with interpreting it as about Christ. But it's actually, as we've seen, quite suitable. It does it in a very tasteful way that is rich in application and encouragement. Through the beauty of marital intimacy, we are given a very realistic picture of the ups and downs of our relationship with our husband, with the Lord. Sometimes showing us as overcome with rapturous delight by His attentions, and sometimes lamenting His absence and crying out to Him to restore and come back to us. Uh, sometimes we're uh, deeply distressed and is not being able to find Him, and other times we're found to be indifferent about our relationship with him, like we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 5 with verse 2. But it should be noted that the Song of Solomon does not speak about the church as a bride that as a whole rejects the Lord. You see, when we look at the Old Testament, I talked about the overall narrative and how that Israel is presented as an unfaithful wife, and you have that in Hosea and so on. Well, there's within that whole body that's the professing people that is faithful and then is unfaithful and then is divorced and cut off and then restored again there is within them those who are true believers like when they were taken into exile there were people like Daniel and his friends that were faithful or or Jeremiah or Ezekiel there were lots of people that were their disciples and stuff that were faithful through that whole time because they were genuinely converted they were the remnant according to election that Paul talks about. They had real faith. The Song of Solomon seems to focus its attention more on those who are that remnant because they're the only ones that really have ever had intimacy with Christ. The visible church, those who are unbelievers in the visible church, they don't know what it really is to commune with Christ. So it talks about the, the real, the, the true believer in the Song of Solomon. Now, those true believers do have struggles. There are times when they are away from the Lord, times when they're resisting the Lord, times when, as believers, but they're still a devoted wife. And, and, and there's a big difference with that. When, when a Christian struggles, they don't say, oh, you know, I don't think I'm going to serve the Lord anymore. I think I want to go and be a Buddhist now. Like if you're a real believer, you don't do that. You might really be struggling and, and, and really having a hard time but you're not going to, like, you, you don't entertain the idea that, oh, I think I'm going to go and, and find another God now. That's what Israel did. Uh, I'm going to go to Baal. You know, God's not really doing what I want. Uh, that's an unbeliever. They don't know what it is to, to really be saved. And, and we don't have any of that kind of thing in the Song of Solomon that, that when, the, when there's a struggle and going astray or, or not doing the right thing, it, it's more in the way of, oh, well, yeah, I'm still committed to him. I still love him. I'm just kind of tired right now, and I don't want to be bothered, you know, like we saw last week. It's a whole different picture. That's what we saw in uh, chapter 5, verse 2 through 4, that Jesus was presented as coming to us, calling us to open to him, but that we were found to resist him, okay? That, that's something that is experienced in the Christian life. We did not want to be bothered. It seemed like too much trouble, because, you know, if... If you're going to be intimate with Christ, if you're going to draw near to him, then you have to be clothed with his righteousness. You have to come in faith, trusting in his righteousness. You have to kind of get, get right in your, in your faith about that. Or you can't really have communion with him. If you come and say, oh, Lord, look at me. I'm, I'm so wonderful with my own righteousness. No, it's not gonna, you're not going to really have any communion with him. You have to really enter into that, that whole way of thinking to, to really come before him, believing what he says about us. You also have to be cleansed from your sin. If you're if you're hiding your sin and pretending like it's not there, you're not really having communion with Christ. You're just doing the superficial stuff. I said my prayers, I read my Bible, but you weren't really connecting with him. Think about like when we when we sang, you know, ride forth in majesty. Are you really thinking about him riding forth in majesty or are you just saying, just singing? You know, it's a whole different thing to sing with communion and to sing just like Blah, 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 just going along with the words. It's, it's dull to do it that way. Some people that don't read the Bible regularly, they say, oh, you know, I, uh, I don't get a lot out of it. It's kind of boring to me sometimes, and things like that, if they're honest about it. Well, maybe it's because they don't really, they, they, they don't have communion with the Lord. They're, they're just reading it in a superficial way. It would be dull if you're not connecting with the one that we're to connect with. So when we're spiritually stru- sluggish and lethargic, we prefer to enjoy the Lord at a comfortable distance rather than being intimate with him. i don 't want to bother with what it takes to have this closer communion with you, uh, though he spoke in the passage very sweetly to us, even presenting himself as out in the weather as well because of not being with us, it was like he was shut out in the, in the, un, under the dew of the heaven. Yet we continued to put up a very ugly, ungrateful, and rude resistance to him. We even went so far as to charge him, suggestively with our questions, of being unreasonable. How can you ask me when I've taken off my robe to put it back on again? How can you ask me when I've already washed my feet to have to wash them again? While it's true that husbands can be inconsiderate of their wives in their advances, sometimes wives can sinfully resist their husbands as well. The Lord Jesus Christ is never inconsiderate in his advances. When we resist his advances, we are always the ones who are in the wrong. He's never unreasonable. We saw, however, that he intervened with us when we were in that wretched state of resisting his call to be intimate with us. He put forth his hand to the door of our heart, the door that we had shut against him, and he touched us with his powerful grace. That's what we saw in verse four. We just briefly looked at that. I showed you how we, the bride, we're stirred up when he did this so that we arose to open him. Now, I told you that we would be looking further at that this week, developing that a little bit more and then moving on forward in the passage. So verse four is kind of a, an overlap passage where we touched on it last week. We're going to pick up from it and move forward on to verse eight this week. And we'll probably do the same thing with verse seven and eight next week. There will kind of be overlap uh, passages as we work through this. There's too much to do all in one sermon. But um, could have divided even more than I did. But we're, we're going to read what we did last week. So starting in verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2 to verse 4, the portion we looked at last week. And then we'll also do 4 again and verse 8 today. So please give your attention as I read God's word to you. God's word is very precious and edifying to us when God blesses us by his spirit. So so here is the word of God, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me, they struck me, they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his infallible word. You see that there is something that's very disturbing here in what we just read. The song speaks of, here, of our husband deserting us. We come to him, we open to him, and he's gone. Nowhere to be found. We're going to be looking at this experience that characterizes believers, the bride of Christ, in their relationship with him. This is characteristic of their relationship. Desertions happen He sometimes deserts us. So let's begin by, though, looking back of that first, going back again to to looking at verse four and five and so on, to the change that he makes in you, his bride, when you have been sluggish and when he comes to wake you up from your spiritual slumbers. Okay, let's explore that change a little further because that's the foundation of, we go as those who are changed to seek him and then he deserts us and we see how radical that change is, that we who are sluggish are now those who persevere in seeking him even when he has deserted us. It's a very, very powerful thing. That's our overall view. So we begin then with the change that he makes in you, as bride, when you have been sluggish and he comes to wake you up from your spiritual slumbers. But before I go further with that point, I just want to be sure that you understand that if you're not a believer, you're not his bride. And the things that I speak here, when I say you, I'm talking about those who are believers. It doesn't mean, however, that the passage has nothing to do with you if you're not a believer. Our gracious Lord extends calls to every person to come to him and to be saved. See, as members of the human race, we are all sinners who have rejected God, our creator, and have fallen under condemnation. He is the just judge, and he tells us that our conduct is so reprehensible that it calls for eternity in the place where, of outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. We don't see it that way, which shows the depth of our problem. We minimize the problem, we deny the problem, we don't want to face the problem. We think it a little thing that we have rebelled against the most high God who created us but he sees it all with the clear eyes of holy justice. Okay, he's the one who has the right understanding of the malady of the of the wickedness of the heinousness of our sin. So those who have come to Christ to be saved have accepted God's judgment what he has pronounced, and they have come to be reconciled to God by Christ. By his grace, we have come to see that we are guilty and that we need to be pardoned. And we have come to see that uh, this is the reason that Christ came, because we were guilty and needed to be pardoned, that the Father sent him to become flesh, that he might represent us and that he might redeem us. As one of us in human flesh, he lived in the righteous way that God requires all people to live. He also suffered on the cross to receive the just punishment of our sin that we all deserve. He calls us to trust him and to trust in what he did to save us from our sin. Trust in him that we might be saved. As soon as we trusted him, we became a part of his true bride. Whom he will bring into his father's house in glory forever and ever. Instead of those who are cut off and condemned. We were all part of those cut off until we came to Christ. We are one bride. become Part of one bride that has, is made up of many members. So if you're here and you're not trusting in him as your savior. You need to consider his call to come to him and be saved. Even as you hear me preach this sermon or as you come to before God in any any situation never has a soul come and put themselves in his hands for salvation that he has not saved them he says anyone that comes to me I will not cast out he says his call is look to me all you ends of the earth and be saved okay now so let's get back with looking at now addressing the bride again, calling you the bride who are believers. Look at the change that he makes in you who are his bride in those times that you have become sluggish and he comes to wake you up. He completely changes you from one who has no interest in letting Christ come near to one whose heart yearns for him your perception of his voice of his knock and of his call to open up and let him come in did not do it okay you you knew that it was from him the the word when you knew it was his word and when you know quite well that he wants you to come near that he's calling you to come near you know that it is him but if you're spiritually sluggish you stay in bed. This is, there is his presence, there is his sweet call, but you remain in bed. The transformation does not come until he acts upon you by his saving hand in the sense of saving. Okay, we're already believers here, but he works by his spirit. Transformation does not come until he reaches out to touch the latch on the door that we have shut against him. Again, we're not thinking about our real door. We're thinking about the door that we shut him out with. This is seen in verse four. My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. There was a complete change. Heart wasn't yearning before. Know that it is always true. Apart from the working of his special, powerful grace, even after we have believed, we will be forever unmotivated to go to the trouble of arising. Clothing ourselves in his righteous garments that he provides, washing our sins with the cleansing that he provides, we will not do those things. We will, be, we will remain in our slumbers. We stay at a distance from him, glad to be his wife, those that are born again, glad that he has redeemed us, thankful for what he's done, but not taking any effort to be intimate with him, re- keeping a distance for where we feel more comfortable from Him. But I say that, that, that once that all-powerful touch of His, that touch that, that cleansed lepers, that, that raised the dead, that healed the sick, once that touch comes, then we will seek Him. And there will be times when we we'll need to be touched again. We'll go back into the slumbers again. We go in and out of this, this sort of thing. But once that touch comes in a situation, then you're radically different. Look at the initial response here that is the result of that touch. We see that you arise to open him to him. Verse five, I arose to open for my beloved. Nothing can keep you in bed now. You have been aroused and you want him. You are constrained You say, as at the start of this song of Solomon, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You're eager to be with him and to have him express his love to you, his commitment to you. He had come to show his love and you did not want to be bothered. And now you're aroused and you want to go to him. And look, your hands that were dry are now seen to be dripping with myrrh. The women in the East often prepare to receive their lovers by perfuming themselves with their precious ointments. And a lot of times they will put it on the back of their hand because that's a place where you know, it's a hot, sweaty place. And it's, that's a place where you're usually more dry and you can, you can put this ointment on your hand. And the allegory, these spices and these ointments represent the fruits that you bring forth that so delight him. We've seen that in the song, in the Song of Solomon, haven't we? That, that he rejoices in the, in the oils, the perfumes, all of these things of his bride. You think, what is it? The fruits that you have in your life that he cherishes. He loves to see our love for him. He loves to see your joy in him. It's a fruit of the Spirit. He loves to see your trust in his goodness. So if someone speaks ill of him, you disregard that. You'll have nothing to do with that. Your submission to him, your admiration of his beauty and his majesty, seeing him as we sang about riding forth in majesty to conquer his enemies. There's a, there, there's, your heart is moved. This is my husband who is going forth to do good. The oil represents the anointing that you have from the Holy Spirit when Christ touches you with his transforming powerful touch that produces all of these delectable fruits. Even one look from his bride makes him delighted, it over, it overjoys him. There is such a profusion of these priceless oils that they're dripping off of your hands as you put your hand on the latch to open the door that you had closed against him that you had left locked, you now are reaching to open that door and these oils. You're all ready with love to him and joy in him to meet him. And so you who are shut up, open to him. Verse six. Okay, she, see, she, verse five, she rose to open. She had these oils on her hand. Now she goes over and she actually opens. Verse six, I opened for my beloved. He is now most welcomed to come into you. The one that you shunned before is welcome to come. Opening to him is really, really faith. That's what it is. As James Durham says, it is the heart yielding to his call, actually consenting to be his. He says, open to me and you open to him. I am yours, Lord. She wants to be a mansion for him to dwell in. okay? A house, a dwelling place, a temple, if you will, for him to dwell. She is saying, I give myself to you to be holy for you, to find my life in you and in your saving work. I am your bride joined to you forever. Like Ephraim is quoted to say in Hosea after he is restored, what have I to do with idols anymore? I belong to you now, Lord. I belong to my husband. I don't want those other lovers. This is such a marvelous thing. Let me say to any of you who may be shutting Christ out right now and refusing to let him come in, don't continue that. This is a miserable way, miserable way to live. Open the door and let him come. What's the point? Why would you shut out the Lord of glory? If he wants to come near to you. If, if you're a believer, you know how much better it is to commune with him. If you don't, you need to find out. If in your slumbers, you're deceived. Because you think that it's not worth the trouble. You think that it'll be too hard. Even though he's the one that gives you the righteousness. Even though he's the one that cleanses you. You're grossly mistaken though. You're making misery for yourself. As long as you resist him. Now, I'd like to tell you that if you open to him, then you'll immediately find him. Like right away, you'll have communion, delightful communion with him as soon as you open the door. But I can't tell you that because the word of God doesn't teach that. It teaches that sometimes you won't. And this passage teaches that sometimes you don't. So the next thing that we need to look at from this text is that Sometimes you will open to Christ only to find that he has deserted you. Now that's exactly what's described in, in verse 6 desertion. Okay, she opens Psalm Solomon, Solomon 5 6. I open for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. Everything is re- reversed. Do you see that? I mean, before he was the seeking savior and she was the one who was the slumbering saint. Now she has woken up, and she's the one that's seeking, and he's gone. He's nowhere to be found. Is this a cruel joke? He touches you and arouses you so that your heart goes out to him, and you want to come to him, and then he goes away? What is going on here? What a great disappointment this is. You were ready to commune with him already with even graces dripping off of your hand. But now he's gone. Gone. It repeats the word as a lamentation. Language, there's a repetition. My beloved had turned away. Gone. Turned away. Gone. You remember how your heart had gone out to him when you finally heard his voice with faith. When his powerful touch opened your heart to receive his call to open him. She says, my heart or my soul leaped up or it went out from me or out of me when he spoke. It was, it was overwhelmed. My soul, I, 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 it, it went out of me. When he spoke. What does she mean? We saw when she spoke when he spoke that she didn't respond, that it wasn't enough. No, but when he touched her, then those words, together with the change in her, became powerful so that her heart went out and she's ready to come. And she goes to him with great desire and delight. You are all in, you see. Your 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 soul had gone out to him. You were ready to come near. But he's gone. He's gone. This is a reality of the Christian life, a experience that Christians have. Now you say, wait, now is this just a Song of Solomon here? You know, does he, he desert people like that? Yes. Did you ever read the Psalms? <laughs> what about David? David certainly knew all about this. The saddest notes in the Psalms are his laments when he has experienced desertion from the Lord. Now he knows, of course, sometimes it's because of his sin, like in Psalm 32 or 51 or something like that, and he needs to repent. But even times when David is just, ostracized, he's just cut off, like Psalm 42 that we sang, when God is far away, how does he cry out to the Lord? How often does he cry out to the Lord to return to him, that, that he might find the Lord again? To, that God would lift up the light of his countenance upon him, his smile would return and, and his perception. Our, our Lord Jesus Himself had to bear this as well. You know that the voice of David in the Psalms is ultimately his voice. He cried out to the Father when He bore our sins on the cross. He cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted me? What are these desertions then? Certainly it is not that the Lord has ceased to be omnipresent, is it? There there is nowhere, like Psalm 139 says, that we can go and get away from Him. You can't run away from God. You can't do like Jonah and get on a ship and try to go away. God is everywhere. Nor is it that His Spirit is no longer dwelling in you. If you're a believer, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We sang of that earlier. If, If the Spirit was gone you would not be yearning for him and seeking the Lord at all. You would, you would be utterly rejecting him. If the Holy Spirit was not there at all, you wouldn't just be sluggish, a sluggish sleeper. You would be an angry apostate, a rejecter of the gentle Savior. Now, it is not that he has removed his covenant or his promise from you either. Nothing like that. The, the promise that he said, I'll be your God and you will be my people. No, that's not the kind of desertion that we're talking about. Or that he didn't take away his promise that he would never leave you or forsake you. It is certainly not the withdrawal of his love or his mercy or his grace. No, the desertion here is not any of those things. What is it then? The desertion spoken of here has to do with the sense of his presence. It is the sweet communion we have when we are fully able to enjoy him, to perceive him, to delight in him, to sense his smile upon us, to see the glory of our Lord. It is what Jesus referred to in John 14. We've looked at it some in the Song of Solomon when he promised that he and the father would come to us and manifest themselves to us when we love him him and keep his commandments he said we will come and manifest her make ourselves known to you Poole calls this uh, taking away this deprivation the removal of his comfortable presence okay he's always present but it's the removal of a sense of his presence of comfortable presence. you are unable to connect with him as a bride to her husband But why? Why does he desert us like this? Well, know that he has good reasons for deserting us. First of all, he deserts us to chasten us. That's right. The Bible teaches us that those he loves, he chastens. If we're going to grow, we need to see clearly the wrong that we have done. And our tendency is to gloss over the wrong and to minimize it. We had resisted his call here in this account, the call of our dear husband who wanted to commune with us. We resisted that. That's a wretched thing to do. We have rudely turned away, left him out in the night, declaring that we can't be bothered just now. We want to take our rest from him. We don't want to come nearer to him or him to come nearer to us by arousing us as he did with his touch and then withdrawing he strikes us with his chastisement in the most possible most effective way possible think about it it causes the wrong of what we have done and perhaps wanted to gloss over to sink in because she realizes she's coming she's expecting to see him she opens the door and he's gone She realizes, I resisted him. That was a horrible thing that I did. It's not a little thing, it's a big thing. He chastens us. Second, all this is very much related to this to humble us. We're much too proud. We forget that we're not worthy of the least of his mercies. Remember Jacob when he was chastened and afflicted? That's what he remembered. Lord, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. When we're praying out to him in a time of desertion and distress, we learn that. We come to grips with that. I don't deserve for you to hear me, Lord. But you're merciful. We begin to focus on who he is instead of how deserving we are. We forget that we deserve to perish in the lake of fire. By deserting us for a while, we're able to see our unworthiness. Humility is actually very sweet to you if you're a true believer. Not if you're not a believer. But it draws your eyes away from your own merit. And so you don't have anywhere to look if if you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, it draws you away from your own merit so that you see I don't deserve anything. And He is so gracious. And you begin to see the beauty of who He is. See, you're not looking at things in the right way when you're trying to bolster up yourself somehow. But when you're humbled and you see yourself as you really are in God's eyes, then you're able to see clearly who He is. And when you see who He is, it brings joy and delight to you. If everything's muddied and He's, he's just down here and there's not really much to look at with Him because you're all puffed up. You, you, you're not looking at anything. You can't see anything straight when you're like that. So Christians find that when they're humbled, it doesn't discourage them It gives them joy because they have clear vision then and they see the glory of the Lord in ways that they hadn't seen it and the glory of their Savior. So humility is very sweet to the Christian. And that's what this brings when when he deserts. like, I don't deserve anything from him. It also humbles you to realize that you're not the one who decides when he's going to come and when you're going to meet with him. He comes to, to meet with you. You better go meet with him. He's the Lord from heaven. You don't say, oh, not now. Maybe next week. I'll tell you what, let's make an appointment next week. When I, you know, No, it's, you're not the one that calls the shots. Call upon him while he is near. He ordinarily graciously receives us whenever we do come to him. When we go to him and we open the door and we, we seek the Lord, he very often responds to us at those times. But if we become proud and begin to take too much to ourselves, then where we're telling him, no, not now, but then, he's not going to respond to us. It's, it's, it's to humble us. Third, his desertions are given to test and prove your love for him. You rebuffed him, and now you claim that you have been changed, and that your heart yearns for him, you said. Does it really? Have you really Have you really been changed? Remember when God tested Abraham to see, Abraham, do you love me? He he tested him to see that. Or will you go back to bed now? Okay, you open the door. Oh, he's gone. Okay, I'll go back to bed. You go back to bed. Do you really yearn for him? If you do, then you'll keep seeking him. You now have an opportunity to show him how much he means to you. You have an opportunity to show others how much he means to you by seeking him. You have an opportunity to find out in yourself how much he means to you by continuing to seek him rather than going back into your slumbering and different state. Fourth, his desertions actually help you to love him more. When you do that, when you keep seeking him and, and yearning for him, as the old saying goes, absence makes the heart grow fonder when he deserts you after you have resisted him and then been transformed so that you yearn for him you realize just how wonderful he is and how wonderful it is to be with him you miss him and you begin to think about him and all the more that you think about him the more you see his beauty and you you think about all the things that are said of him in the in the word of god and and it changes your your affection grows stronger your love grows deeper think about what he's done for you now we'll have a lot more to say that about that in future sermons when we look at when the bride starts talking about you know what is your beloved more than any other beloved and she starts (laughs) pouring out all of these things that he is to her because she's she's deserted from him she's thinking about who he is like you look at someone's picture when they're gone you don't look at it when they're when they're there you look at them but you're, you're thinking about all that they are and the love is increased. Fifth, his desertions prepare you for the joy of his return. He will return to you. These desertions are not permanent for the Christian. He, he delights to be with us. He's doing this for a, a definite purpose. He will return and when he does, how much sweeter your relationship will be than if he had never deserted you at all. Because you've been through this whole experience of, of yearning for him, seeking him, love developing, all of those things. And now when he comes back, it's better than it would have been if you'd just gone open the door and he'd been right there. This is the way that he works. And sixth, in a similar way, his desertions prepare you for heaven. When you cannot find him in this world at times, it causes you to set your affection on the things of glory, on the hope of glory. When we will never Ever again be separated from him. It prepares you even for greater enjoyment in heaven, too. That in heaven you'll look back and you remember how it was on the earth and you'll delight in the fact that now you're constantly in the presence of his glory, knowing of his nearness. So you see, his desertions are not without purpose, they are actually quite full of purpose. They are for our own good and they are for his glory. Now we move to our third thing. When he has done a transforming work in you to restore the yearning of your heart for him, you will continue to seek him even though he has deserted you. This is ironic. Even though he has deserted you as far as your sense of his presence, he is actually the one who is sustaining you the whole time in your seeking By his powerful grace. That's right. The only reason that you keep seeking him when he has deserted you is because he is upholding in you that seeking by the working of his spirit. So what did you let's look at what you did as soon as you opened the door and saw that he was gone because he has touched you, you see, with his grace. What did you do? You opened that door. You saw that he was gone. We're told from the middle of verse six, I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Instead of going back to bed, you went looking for him. You went on a quest. Because you had been changed from that sleepy Christian to that seeking Christian. Now, how do you seek him? Okay, let's look at these two things. How do you seek him and how do you call to him? Because she says, I sought him. and I called to him. Well, seeking him. What do you do when you seek? You go to his word to learn of him and his ways. That's how he is appointed for us to have communion with him. It doesn't mean you necessarily open the Bible per se, although often it means that. But you may also think about the things that you know from God's word your goal though in going to the word is not just to get information it's to hear his voice it's to see him revealed to you to have communion with him to know him as he is to see his glory none of that stuff where you read your bible and say oh i did my bible reading and you check it off and you go on your way that's just stupid I mean, not that it's bad to necessarily have a plan that you check. But that whole reading, the purpose of it, what are you doing? You're looking to have communion with Him. You're not just looking to fulfill a duty that, there, I read my Bible, I'm good now. No, you're coming seeking Him. Seeking to know Him as He reveals Himself to us in the Scripture. And how about... The calling on him. What about that calling to him? Well, by prayer, of course, you plead with him to come to you and have communion with him, you with you. You plead with him like Moses did. Show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me. You search your heart and you make your confession of your sin to him. And you cry out to Him for renewal. Lord, cleanse me. You pray for Him to come and minister to you, to deliver you, to comfort you, to encourage you, to enable you to walk in the ways that are pleasing with Him. You want to offer the fruits that He has given you to Him to come to your garden. See, it's not just saying your prayers. Just rattling off your now I lay me down to sleep or something. It is a true seeking, a genuine heart cry for communion with God that we're talking about here. And even though you at first seek and do not find, and even though you cry and do not have the blessing of His answer, you still don't go back to bed. Hey, what about after that? You know, she looks around, you know, where did He go? You know, over here. He's over, hey, hey, where are you? I'm here. Oh. Oh. Oh, well, and then she goes back. No, she doesn't do it still. What does she do next? What do, where do we find her next? We find her going about the city. His work of grace continues, so the seeking goes on. You seek him in public ordinances. In other words, you come to church. I have seen a sad thing lately with some of our members that you need to pray for, that we need to pray for. They experience difficulties in their lives, and instead of seeking God all the more, they curl up on their couch, spiritually speaking. They profess that it's too hard for them to go to church, that it's too painful. Indeed, a sign that they need the transforming touch of Christ to restore them. Those who have His grace at work are drawn to both private and public ordinances. You don't run away from God in your need. You run to God in your need. That's where the comfort is. That's what Paul says. We went to God to find comfort. They come to find Him whom their soul loves in the assembly where He loves to meet with His people and to make Himself known. They don't come just to do their time at church. They come to meet the bridegroom because He delights in revealing Himself in the assembly of the saints. They know that it is a place where He often makes Himself known through the Word through the sacraments, through the prayer, through the singing of praise. They're not legalists who find his ordinances burdensome to them and condemning of them. They find saving his, his, his saving grace, his sufficiency that's set before them, his beauty. Again, the humility. When, when they hear bad things about themselves at church, it doesn't beat them down. It lifts their eyes up to him who is their savior. Their eyes are open and they see clearly His beauty and His saving grace. It doesn't discourage them. It refreshes them because they have a heart for God. Remember the prodigal son's elder brother? That poor guy, he was a legalist. He was doing all the stuff. He was in his father's house. I've been here the whole time tolling away for you. Tolling away. That's how he looked at it. And what did I get out of it? That's how he saw it. What an attitude, what a sad attitude. He saw his service to his father's house as a burden to be born, a duty that beat him down instead of a soul renewing place of refreshment where comfort and joyful communion is found. That's sad. That's sad. See here how that, as the bride of Christ, you know God as a God of grace even though you cannot find him at first in the public assembly at church, you know that public ordinances are a place that he is to be sought. In verse 7, we are told of the bad experience that you, the bride, have with the watchmen. These watchmen are the ministers of the church. Ministers are often called watchmen, you know, prophets or um, elders or different ones that watch for the soul. They're, you know, they're, they're watchmen, they're overseers. Your testimony is this. Okay, you, went, you went to the public assembly. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. It appears that these watchmen saw you in your distress, and instead of ministering to you, they accused you. They saw you wandering about in search of Christ, and they took you to be a harlot looking for love somewhere other than from your husband with some other man, someone else. They wound you, they strike you, they take away your veil as if you are a loose woman who has no right to wear a veil, that it's a false symbol of your um, commitment. They call into question your profession then is what that's talking about. Again, we're not talking about men and women here. We're all the bride of Christ. We're all the female in this case. So they call into question your profession, even though you're earnestly seeking Christ alone. It's the mistake that Eli made when he accused Hannah, when she was praying to God, pouring out her heart for a child. And he said, what are you doing drunk here? Because her soul was overwhelmed and she was crying out to God. But she was in the place seeking God. She wasn't avoiding God. She went right to the temple to seek God. It is the mistake that Jesus' disciples and not just Judas made, when they accused the woman who poured out the precious oil to anoint Jesus as being prodigal, of wasting, of not being responsible with her thing, when it was an act of pure devotion to Christ. They misread her. The watchman got it wrong. In God's providence, this is part of God's ch- the Lord's chastisement of his bride as well. It didn't happen without him, did it? Yeah, they were wrong. The watchmen need to repent. These shepherds ought to have not, they ought not to have rebuked you in that case. Now, they should have probably rebuked you before when you were slumbering all that time. They should have said something to you when you were slumbering. Now, when you came seeking him so zealously, they take you as someone who's unhinged, someone who's gone, who's not genuine, someone who's looking in the wrong places and they rebuke you and they, deny your profession in a sense they take the veil away it was an error on their part to not grasp that you were seeking your husband but look i say look at the exemplary response of the bride who has been touched by the lord jesus christ and his spirit by his transforming grace look at what she does The bride's beautiful, unyielding quest for him, seeking of him, is seen in her conversation with her friends, the young disciples in the church, who are called the daughters of Jerusalem. Again, we're not just talking about women here, we're talking about men and women. We're all daughters of Jerusalem in the church. In verse 8, she charges them. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him. I am lovesick. Now, do you get the point here? Do you see this? She is about one thing. Finding him whom her soul loves. That's what she's concerned about. She does not complain that you know, he, he did wrong to me. He called me. I went and opened, and then he was gone. He left me. He deserted me. No, no. She doesn't think that way about him at all. No, he's her Lord, and she knows she's the one that did wrong. And and she's just saying, I've just got to find him. I've got to find him. Nor does she complain about the watchman who wounded her and took away her veil, marking her out as an ungodly woman. Those things are not, those aren't the thing that she's concerned about. She's concerned about him. She wants to be with him. What matters is finding him. And so she solemnly charges These fellow members, she tells them that if they should find her beloved, maybe they have communion with him. She's not finding communion with him. But if they do, that they must intercede for her. They must tell him, tell him that I am lovesick if you see him. This is like being homesick, isn't it? When you're homesick, it doesn't mean you hate home. It means you love home and you hate being away from home. If you're lovesick, you you love love and you you want to have this love for Him and you you hate being away from Him. The bride of Christ is lovesick because she's away from the one that she loves. She says, tell Him. I'm I'm lovesick. I, I, I miss Him. I want Him. This is just what you will do as the bride of Christ when you love Christ and can't find Him. You'll ask others to pray for you. Yes, you will be humble enough to tell your Christian friends. Not tell them how you have been wronged, but of how you are estranged from Christ and that you want to find Him again. You will ask them to pray for you. Perhaps some of them will have access to Him that you lack right now. So you will ask them to pray for you. Think about the Apostle Paul. He asked the people of God to pray for him. Do You realize how important that is? Do you realize how important that is from both sides? You need your brothers and sisters in the church to pray for you. And when you're estranged from God and you're not having communion, ask your brothers and sisters, ask them to pray for you. Say, I need you to pray for me. I, I'm far away from God and I want to I want to come near to Him and I can't find Him. Pray for me. And and, and uh You also, if you're one that is being asked to pray for others, you need to take that very, very seriously. You know, we don't just need the prayers of one or two people in the church. We're a body, and we all need to be praying for each other. And if someone comes to you personally, especially, and they say, Will you pray for me about this? You say, Oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. You better do it. You're doing a great disservice to them if you don't care. And you don't pray for them. This is, this is such an important matter. If you don't pray to them, you've done wrong to them. A great wrong. We need each other. We need to ask each other for real prayer. And we need to offer prayer. Real prayer for our brothers and sisters. Now, next time, we're going to look at how these daughters of Jerusalem respond to her. It's not very healthily. They say, what's the big deal, basically? Why, why do you want to find him? What, what, how is he different than, than anyone else? And of course, she, she tells them It's a beautiful story. But there's a beautiful outcome. Even though she has that, with the, she doesn't get help. She, she, doesn't get, she doesn't find satisfaction when she seeks him, when he first departs from her. She doesn't find satisfaction when she goes to public ordinances. There's, she finds nothing there. She goes to the daughters of Jerusalem, asks them to pray nothing. But what does she do? She keeps on going, keeps on seeking, and we'll see the beautiful outcome in, 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 as we go on in this, um, in this series. But what have we seen today? We have seen something today that is very, very important and very beautiful. Even though the bride is still estranged from Christ, her husband, she has been marvelously transformed from a sleeping bride who excuses herself from drawing near to Christ to one who is truly seeking him with all her heart. It is not her, but the grace of God in her that has brought this about. Yes, the one who deserted her has given her this grace to seek him and he has deserted her because by his desertion of her, he will make her love stronger to him than it ever was before. What a wise and gracious husband he is, a husband to be trusted. See then that you cherish him as his true bride. And when he has deserted you, make it your single aim to find him. Not to make excuses, not to do all the other things that you do, not to find other diversions, but make it your aim to find him. You will be edified through the whole process, and he will be glorified through the whole process. We're going to see more about that as we continue on in in the coming weeks, Lord willing. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the precious truths that we have seen in your word today. That you and your wisdom do what is necessary for our reformation, for our progress in our relationship with you. That even though sometimes it seems that you are deserting us, and in fact you are doing so, that you have a purpose in it. But Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be ostracized from you because we don't know you as our Savior. I pray, Lord, that we would turn to you, Lord, for that that saving work, that we would put ourselves in your hands to save us because Jesus is the only Savior. And we pray, Lord, that we would know your salvation. But then we also pray that we would know communion with you as your bride, that we would know what it is to walk with you, that we would know what it is to see your glory and to know of your smile upon us, to have you lift up the light of your countenance upon us and to be gracious to us. We pray, O Lord, that we would be those who walk under your favor and who bring forth fruit that pleases you and delights you and who delight in doing so. We pray, Lord, that when there are those desertions, that you would give us the grace that we need so that we will not slumber and sleep, but that we will arise and we will open to you. And then we will not stop, that we will keep on seeking until we find you. O Lord, thank you that you're able to do such a work in us. We pray that such a work would be very evident in us, that you would be glorified and that we might be edified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The blessing of the Lord, our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.